Welcome to episode 50 of Paper Talk. It's a milestone, listeners. If you're new here, I invite you to go back and listen to the first 49 episodes. Paper Talk is a monthly series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the field of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper, featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper. Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about my online classes, workshops, how-to books, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, and my new papermaking masterclass, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can sign up at helenhebertstudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Matt Schlein, a paper engineer whose work is rooted in print media, book arts, and commercial design. We talk about the trajectory of his career, from immersing himself in various media, first at Alfred University and then at the Cranbrook Academy of Art, to working as a visiting research scholar at the University of Michigan, where he collaborated with scientists using paper techniques. Matt works with art consultants and galleries around the world to place his artwork, which is created using technology and a lot of handwork. And we talk about the balancing act of making work, hiring employees, being a husband, he and his wife have collaborated on some pretty cool projects, and raising two young children. Enjoy our conversation. Matt Schlein, welcome to Paper Talk. I'm so happy hey, to. Uh, yeah, I'm so happy to um, see you face to face. Listeners can't see you, but and talk to you in person after reading about your work and featuring you in my book, Playing with Pop Ups. Yeah, yeah, My pleasure. Looking forward to our conversation. So, um, what kind of things did you do as a kid, and where did you grow up? Art-related things. I grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in a very small town in the southern part of Connecticut. Art things, I, I love to draw. I love to take things apart and figure out how they worked and do weird art projects with friends. But more than that, I played a lot of music. I played drums growing up. And so I was always in bands. And, you know, I think about high school, just running around with friends and playing punk rock music. Like that was the creative outlet for me. And, you know, it's funny, like even now, like some of my friends growing up with didn't know that I did art. They're just like, you do art? You know, they're just yeah. like, you're a Matt the drummer to them. So it's kind of fun now. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still play the drums? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. For sure. Yeah. Cool. Are you in a band? No, I wish I was. I had, I had two kids. So this is my life now is I'm, <laughs> I'm doing studio art and then hanging out with babies. Um, right. Yeah. No, I, I would love to. I always threaten my wife that we should build like a, a shed in the backyard, like a drum shed. That's mm-hmm. what I really want is to have a place to put drums. But, yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, and so then you went to Alfred University, mm-hmm. and what did you study there? I studied just about everything at Alfred. Um, it's the New York State School of Ceramics, so originally I thought I'd want to do ceramics, but when I was there, I just I took classes in everything that I could. I took printmaking, I took, I don't know, video, performance, glass blowing. Like I, I just wanted to do everything. I had a very limited exposure to the arts growing up, and so when I got to school, it was like, I was just hungry. I just wanted to try it all. Um, 
And then through that, I ended up getting into paper, which wasn't really an option, but I sort of made it an option when I was an undergrad. Uh-huh. And that's interesting. I'm just thinking that I went to a very small liberal arts school and studied art, and I had very limited possibilities. Mm-hmm. I wish I wish I'd had what you had. That's cool to be able to explore yeah. everything. So oh, what, kind of, yeah, what kind of things were you doing with paper there then? Um, well, I did, it was everything from making paper, you know, um, to doing printmaking using paper. Um, I fell into paper sort of in a backwards way. I was in, I was in ceramics and I was in print media at the same time. I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked. So the senior year at Alfred, you didn't have to pick a major, but you chose which faculty you wanted to work with. And I got along really well with faculty in print and faculty in ceramics. And I just had a studio in both. And I was taking apart pop-up books and trying to figure out that language of pop-up books, like how Mm -hmm. they were engineered and what that mechanical structure was. I've always had an affinity for geometry and for, you know, things that move spatially and 2D to 3D transformations. Like I can understand that stuff. Yeah. And so paper became a real natural fit because it was quick and you could generate lots of ideas. And one of my faculty advisors, Ann Courier, who's this phenomenal ceramic artist, um, she's a collector of pop-up books. And she said, here, take these books apart and figure out how they work. And I did. And um, that's sort of how it started, I think. Okay. Okay. And so then you finished college and what happened next? So I graduated in 2002. Okay. Um, It doesn't sound, it sounds like a long time ago. It doesn't feel like a long time ago, but it it was. Um, I wanted to get a job. Uh, I wanted to not live with my parents. That's all I remember from wanting to leave school is not, don't go back home. And I got a job designing pop-up books and greeting cards and like point of purchase display stuff out of paper in uh, Essex, Connecticut. I lived in Middletown um, those years. And and that was at Structural Graphics? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked in the industry there. I, you know, at the time, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do more with paper, and I was loving just the engineering and figuring out how to do things with paper. And uh, they offered me an internship, and it led to a job. And I think I was there for like two, two and a half years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just doing everything, doing like pop-up books, doing greeting cards, doing a lot of pieces for like pharmaceutical industries, like a lot of um, direct mail pieces, stuff that unfolded. You know, they had this this thing that it was a theory, I guess, that when something was interactive, people spent like 70% more time with it. If you got a piece of junk mail, right. um, if it, if it popped up or did something that was important. So, um, I just, just I just yeah. read something about text messaging that that's the new marketing really? tool. Can you believe that? So watch out. Ah! I don't want it. I don't want <laughs> I know. It. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, there was something nice about the tactile quality of that stuff and, and, and having something in your hands. I mean, I, I saved a bunch of them. Like it would be, you know, something that's flat and it opens up and it's like a, yeah. Yeah, it's like a plant or it's like a, a star or something and it's selling you, I don't know, depression medication or it's, I don't know what it was. It was, it was always like something that, that came after. They're like, oh, let's make this thing sell. Uh, I don't know. Interesting. Whatever, menopause drugs. But I just, I enjoyed the figuring out of how stuff worked. Um, and I did that for a number of years and then I kind of, I got bored in that industry and I wanted to see what else I could do with paper. Yeah, and I think uh, you must have been exposed to or become used to uh, really cool equipment 
for cutting yes. paper and folding production, but also limited by having to be able to have the paper engineer in certain ways, right? Yeah. It's funny. It's like when I left Alfred, I had all this access to machines and printmaking equipment and everything. And then it's like, you have to start with nothing. Well, what can you do in your apartment? You know, and it was like, I was silk screening, I was doing stenciling, um, you know, I was doing like stickers and graffiti or whatever. And then when I was at Structural, we had access to these flatbed plotter cutters, which um, are like laser cutters, but instead of a laser, it has a very small uh, titanium tip blade that is basically like a drag knife. But whatever you have on your screen, this thing can cut out, perforate, cut score, whatever. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was fun to get to play with that technology and learn how to use AutoCAD, which is like drawing with a brick. <laughs> from someone who's an artist to becoming a designer. It was really, really hard to do that. Uh-huh. It took me about three or four months to, to get the ideas in my head, out of my head and into the computer. It took a long time. Yeah. Uh, now I'm really fast. I'm pretty good with CAD now. And, and I actually yeah. saved up money when I was there and bought a, a plotter cutter. Um, okay. So when I left, I took a very small one. It was like 18 by 24. It took uh-huh. me th- three years of saving, but I, I do have one. And now I actually have a larger one in the studio as well. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was great to have access to that technology, and I would go in there early before anyone would arrive. They foolishly gave me a key they shouldn't have, and I would go in and I would make my own work, and then I'd like hide it uh-huh. um, because I didn't want it to sell, you know, menopause drugs or <laughs> cigarettes right. or whatever they were trying to sell. I wanted to use it for myself. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, okay, so you were kind of you were making work still as oh, you yeah. were working there, and then. Um, what happened after that job? So I left that job and I went to graduate school. Uh, okay. I, I knew that I just wanted to spend more time investigating the ideas that were in my head and the work that I wanted to see out in the world. And I went to grad school. I went to Cranbrook Academy of Art. That's mm-hmm. how I ended up in Michigan. Okay. Um, and Cranbrook was similar to Alfred in that there's you know, 10 different departments. And the joke is you go in for printmaking, which is the department I went in for, but you know, if you go in for printmaking, there's a really good chance you're going to come out doing architecture. You know, if you go in for metalsmithing, you're probably going to get into puppetry or something, you know, and they're fine with it. They, they, it's two year program. There's no classes. You work with mentors. Okay. Um, and so when I was there, I was working with people in ceramics and people in print, people in design, um, some people in architecture. And, you know, I don't think I made any traditional print, print prints at all, really. I think I silk screened some t-shirts. Um, but really I was just, um, investigating these forms and these ideas and doing like not pop-up books, but sort of these structural book forms. Um, and then, yeah, it, it was, a uh, it was like two years of just growth in the mm-hmm. work that I could just focus and just do my own work. I'd worked long enough at that job that it was like, I had all these ideas and things I wanted to do. Uh, and it was just time to do it. Right. And were you, is that where you met your wife or were you already married at that point? I was not married at that point. I met Thea at Alfred actually. Okay. She, uh, we were together at Alfred. So we've had a very long engagement. We didn't get married till 2012, but we'd okay. been together for forever. Okay. You know, yeah. 15 years before then or whatever. Um, but yeah, so she was at, in Ann Arbor when I was at grad school. She went to grad school at University of Michigan. Okay. And that program was a three-year program and Cranbrook was two. And when I left Cranbrook, I moved to Ann Arbor. And I've been in Ann Arbor since 2006. It's been a while. Right. And she's an artist too. Is that right? Yeah. Thea's an artist. She does a lot of stuff. She does a lot of mixed media installation work. Um, she's 
I work in paper. She works in just about everything else, I would say. Um, but she's been doing a lot of woodworking recently. Mm-hmm. Um, she runs a, uh, a website called Hosta Designs, and they, she does, like, um, wooden trays and, like, installations using wood and wooden sculptures. Um, we turned our garage into her wood shop. Right. And I wanted to just mention your eight emperors or ask you about that. Cause I know you used yeah. to do it. I'm not sure if you're still doing it. it yeah, we still do it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sophia and I, what it is. Yeah. sure. Sophia and I, well, the, so let me back up the work I'd been doing got bigger and bigger. And I do a lot of work for corporate clients and big art installation stuff. And then I'd always get emails from friends or just whoever just saying, Hey, I'm celebrating my first year anniversary. It, it's paper. Would you make me something? And I'm going, I, I don't have time to do this. Like I can't make a thing for a hundred dollars. Like it just doesn't make sense. Right. But the request came enough that Fee and I said, well, we really should have some form of making like maybe either limited edition or just sort of like it actually ended up being open edition, but like making smaller art pieces, art objects. And so she would make things out of wood. I would make things out of paper. And we started eight emperors uh, as a subscription service. So you would pay, I don't remember what it was, $200 or $250. And then you'd get four pieces mailed to you throughout the year. And I figured a couple of my friends would sign up for it or whatever. And quickly we became overwhelmed. It was a bad idea. I mean, it was a good idea for other people. It was a bad idea for us. Um, and we were dealing with international shipping and all the other, I, I just, I couldn't do it. And yeah. um, so we, we, we stopped the subscription and then we just offered the pieces as one-offs on the site. Um, and now it's, it's sort of a repository for pieces we made through that service. And then a couple other smaller art, objects it's mostly paper now Mm -hmm. um but it still exists and it's just a way to make the work accessible to a different demographic um right yeah i think most of my time is spent doing larger crazier pieces um which is what i like doing but i still want to be able to offer something for someone that you know has like a hundred dollar two hundred dollar budget right 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 okay so let's go back that was a little fast forwarding so sure so then you you finished Cranbrook, yeah. and I love the story I read that you just tell me the story about sending the DVDs to yeah all over because you knew you were moving to Ann Arbor. Yeah. So excuse me. So I I graduated from Cranbrook and I knew I was moving to Ann Arbor. I figured I'd be teaching. I didn't really know exactly how I was going to be making it all work, and. I wrote to a bunch of scientists at the University of Michigan. So the University of Michigan is this major research university. It's got Life Science Institute. It's got microbiology. It's got aerospace. I mean, anything you want to do with research and science, this is the place to do it. And so I figured, well, my work is starting to lean more towards um, visually representing scientific principles, or maybe it has to do with uh, protein misfolding or something like that I was interested in at the time. And And how did you... How did you yeah. discover that, that your work really? So, so when I was at Cranbrook, uh, I, was, I was doing these smaller book forms, these, I hesitate to call them pop-ups, but they were kinetic paper sculptures. Mm-hmm. And I had a critique with this, this guy, Peter Lynch, who was the head of architecture there. And he said that your work is, is interesting at this scale, but I think to be really interesting, it either needs to be really big or really small. And I, I thought about that a lot because when you start to shift those scales, things happen, right? When you go large, it becomes architectural. When you go small, it starts to do something different. And I was thinking, well, the forms that I'm playing with look like molecular chains maybe, or they look like something that has to do with uh, structural design, right? What could this thing be useful for besides just 
quote unquote art or fine art, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I graduated from Cranbrook, my thesis piece was this 13 foot tall robotic paper contraption that moved. Um, and I thought, well, it's interesting at, at this size, but what, what could it be if I really shrunk it very small? And I started thinking about science and these things that exist on the micro and nano scale. And, and I started reaching out to scientists and seeing if there was any crossover between my work and what they were doing. And I basically just sent out 50 DVDs and art objects, these pop-up, you know, kinetic moving things to people at the university, all across the university, just people from, I don't know, molecular biology on up. And I said, hey, I'm Matt, and I like to fold paper. Um, maybe there's some crossover between your work and research and what I'm doing. Let's play. That's, that's really all I said, and I, yeah. I sent them some stuff. And out of 50 people, uh, six wrote back saying, thank you for the work. I don't really know what to do with you, but thank you. And one guy said, why don't you come give a talk? And he was at the macromolecular science department which was crazy because I didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. um, but I went and I gave a talk and I presented my work and I was talking about, um, at the time I was doing some pleated forms and things that revolved around itself. And I was presenting to a room of just geniuses, just scientists, and um, they got it. They understood my work in a very different way than I had been experiencing it. And they, they saw connections between what they were doing and what I was doing. And then we started to collaborate. And I started working with different scientists uh, using paper both as a research tool and as an illustration tool. So a lot of times they would say, well, here's the thing I'm thinking about. How can we use what you do to to show this in space? How can we use this to illustrate a scientific principle? Um, and then it became more research-oriented where it's like, well, if we're trying to fold solar cells or we're trying to make more efficient solar cells, how can we use paper as a tool to create uh, structure and form? Can we test it in paper and then translate it to photovoltaics? And like, yeah, you can. Or can we do something using self-assembly, using paper models, and then emulate it on the computer and do self-assembly growth. And there's a lot of places that paper use, is used right now in the world of science. There's people like Robert Lang and Eric Domain. Yeah. Um, at the time I was doing it, there wasn't much. I mean, I feel like there was a few people doing some paper and, you know, kirigami and origami in science. But in the time that we started till now, it's really blown up. I mean, it's really like its own branch of art and science. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I felt like I was a little bit ahead of a curve for mm -hmm. once in my life doing that sort of stuff. I felt like there was something there. I couldn't quite see it. But when I presented it to these scientists, they saw it. Right. And I think you're a little unique because you're an artist. And yeah. Robert Lang is a mathematician, physicist, and Eric Domain yeah. also has a very... I don't yeah. know what his background exactly is, but he's a genius. <laughs> I've met them both. They're both lovely. Uh -huh. people. Yeah. My, my background is not in math or science right. Right. at all. Right. I failed math in high school. I failed algebra. I never got past algebra. Um, like oftentimes I'm talking to these scientists and they're talking about, I don't know, Van der Waals forces, or they're talking about something. And I'm just like, you guys have to dim this down because we speak a different language, but when we talk, um, using diagrams or using imagery, I can understand it and they can understand what I'm doing. So there is a crossover. It's funny, I'm actually speaking at the Museum of Mathematics in oh, yeah. uh, November. Uh -huh. uh, there's a show up there and they brought, they're bringing me in. Yeah. And I'm a little bit nervous because I don't, <laughs> I don't speak mathematics. Um, but I hope that I can go and present the work and they can start to understand it in a way that you know, ties into math and, and things like that. Um, oh, totally, they will. Yeah. 
You're yeah. very, you're very fun to talk to and listen to. I watched several of your presentations online. Oh, thanks. Honey. You'll be well, I hope I'm not repeating everything I say <laughs> elsewhere. Um, no, but I want to hear about the formal relationship between you and the scientists. So were you paid? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, job? so for a number of years for probably, I don't know how many years I was there for maybe like six or seven years, I was just a visiting research scholar, which is a fancy way of saying volunteer, mm-hmm. um, where I would, I would meet with different science teams and I would, you know, I would uh, help with grad students and I, I was just around, you know, for as much as I was giving them, they were giving me ideas and giving me thoughts and it was a really symbiotic relationship. I just liked being around them. I mean, I, I take inspiration from things generally outside of the art world. I don't really look at a lot of paper art. I'm not really interested in paper. This is a, I realize saying that to you on your podcast paper talk might be sacrilegious, but like the paperness of it isn't necessarily the most important part for me. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, so when I talk to scientists, they're giving me ideas and I'm thinking about pattern or I'm thinking about form and that always manifests itself back into my work in the studio. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a number of years and then we, we received a grant from the National Science Foundation it was a $2 million grant and that then I got paid. It's not as much as you'd think for $2 million, but I got healthcare for four years. And um, it was really great to, to have that, you know, manifest. And then from that grant, we were able to publish papers and put out some, you know, some new patents and things like that. Um, but that, that money just disappears very quickly when you're hiring grad students and you want to go to conferences and to publishing. It just, it like very quickly evaporates when there's seven people on the team. Um, uh, did anything concrete come out of it? Yeah, we got a couple patents. Um, we did a patent on uh, solar cell design. Our uh, designs using Kirigami as a as a as a starting point for generating new solar cells um, got patented. Um, I ha- I'll be honest, I haven't seen any money from it, but I'm hopeful that maybe at some point it'll yeah. uh, it'll that check it'll pay for up. your daughter's college tuition. Uh, yeah, right. I, I got two of them now, so now. Okay. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. big money. Um, <laughs> But, but better than that, almost, I mean, money would be great, but yeah. better than that is that paper that we published. Um, one of the scientists that I'm friends with, Pablo, will send me these links that other people are writing papers and citing us, which is like the best thing for, you know, someone in the science world or research world is because of your contribution. Now all these other contributions can happen. And so it's sort of, it's sort of like you get listed in a hierarchy. I mean, I'm, I'm an, whatever, a contributing author on several papers between you and I, none of which I can read or have read. It's just the <laughs> images and, and the, you know, the context that I've, that I've given to it. Yeah. But I, I very quickly, I can't, I can't understand the math and the, the language. I'm just like, oh God, I have no idea. But the fact that it's being used and is useful for other people to build on is, is sort of the nice feather in the cap you know, yeah. for the scientists. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Ah, okay, so let's go back to your artwork then and sort of how because I know you show, you have galleries, you do commissions, sort of how did that, how has that evolved? Yeah, so I always made work, I always sold work. Um, I have a funny story to tell you. I don't know, I don't know how long these podcasts go, Helen, so if you need to edit me, by all means, edit me. Yeah, we'll go about 30 more minutes, so. Okay, so I'll tell you a funny story. So when I was an undergrad, this is, this is the story of how I, figured out I was an artist or how my family accepted me as an artist. It's kind of goofy. Um, my parents are not artists. My mom was a special needs teacher and my dad is an accountant. I'm an anomaly in my family. Um, I was an undergrad and, you know, the first two years I would bring home just drawings and my mom said, all you draw is naked people and skeletons, which to be fair is all you do through foundations. Right. She's like, you got to make me a nice drawing. Uh, 
I want something nice to put up on the wall. And so one of the breaks from school, I think I just drew a, uh, just like a still life, some flowers, whatever, some leaves. Um, if you, people wouldn't know this about me, but I'm actually pretty good at drawing. No one ever sees my drawings, but like I could actually draw pretty well. I used to teach drawing. Okay. Um, so I made her this drawing and my dad had done um, the books for some frame shop in Southport, Connecticut, some very high end framing place. Mm -hmm. And they brought the, the piece there and the guy liked it. And he, he had uh, some silver gilded, whatever frame. And he put it in his frame for my mom and it looked nice. And he had it uh, waiting for her to pick up in the front of the store. And one of his clients came in and said, Oh, I really like that that drawing, I'd like to buy it. And he said, oh, I can't sell it to you. It's this woman's permission. Her son did it. And he goes, I'll give you, I don't know what it was like, $2,000 for it. <laughs> and the guy called my mom and my mom was like, no, it's my birthday gift. You can't sell it. Um, meanwhile, at the time I'm working at like Blockbuster video. I'm making right. like maybe $2,000 the whole summer. Um, and they tell me that and I'm like, are you crazy? Like you should have <laughs> sold, I'll make you another drawing. Like you nuts. And so that summer I met and I, I went to that gallery and I met the guy and he did a lot of custom framing and sometimes he would frame something that was like an oddball size, like it was 13 and three quarters by whatever. Mm -hmm. And the person didn't want it. So he'd get left over this frame and he just didn't know what to do with these frames. And he said, Hey, if you make me drawings to fit these frames, we'll sell them and you can get the price of the drawing. I'll get the price of the frame. Easy peasy. Uh -huh. And that summer, I remember going back home and every summer I worked since I was 13, every summer my dad would be like, you get a job yet? Did you get a job yet? Like get a job. That summer I came home and I was like, I'm playing video games in my room or something. And my dad came in and he said, have you drawn yet today? Have uh, you drawn yet? And at that moment it was like, oh, my son's an artist. That's like, your I, job. Yeah. I'm, that's my job. Yeah. And so I've been fortunate that I've been able to either teach or sell work in some way to support this art habit that I can yeah. continue moving forward. Um, so I taught for a number of years after I graduated from Cranbrook. I was teaching in Ann Arbor. I was teaching at the university. I was teaching at Washtenaw Community College. Teaching foundations or? Yeah, teaching yeah. like Art 101, teaching mm -hmm. foundations. I would teach a few upper level classes where it was maybe paper focused, or I would teach classes between engineering and architecture and art. I would teach classes in paper like that. Um, but a lot of foundations. And I kind of got burnt out teaching foundations year after year. You know, I'd see my students go on and I would still be like this filter that everyone had to pass through. And, right. Um, so I, I kind of cut back on teaching. I started the studio about 10 years ago and said, you know, if I'm going to try this, I just really want to throw it all in. And, and I took a semester, I saved up some money and I just did art full time. And at the time I'd been working with a few different um, like art consultants. I'd been working with a record label. I worked with this record label ghostly for a number of years and we would do like limited edition art pieces and they'd sell out. And, you know, it was like sort of hodgepodge making a living. And then, I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but I started dealing with galleries. I started dealing with um, more consultants and I'm just, I'm busy now doing it. Like it's, you know, you put work out in the world and someone sees it and they go, well, I'd like that piece, but what if it was, you know, this color or this size, could you do this commission or whatever? And, and that's sort of been my bread and butter for uh, the last seven or eight years has just been doing commissions or doing pieces for galleries or doing pieces for museums or a lot of hospitality um, doing hospitals. Um, yeah, I've been really busy just doing that. So you get a lot of work through these consultants then it sounds like. How many art consultants do you work with? Um, About. <laughs> it looks like you can't count. I mean, a lot. Legit, like honestly, probably 30 or 40. Okay. Um, they're all over the country. Some are in yeah. Canada. Um, some are overseas. And it's just, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know how insider baseball you want to go on this as far as like nuts and bolts, but like, you know, you make a piece, you sell it through a gallery, it's 50, 50, right. Mm-hmm. Um, then you got to pay for shipping, framing, insurance, right. like all those things, like, and then taxes. So like by the time this piece that's a thousand dollars sells, you might have 250 bucks. Right. Yeah. Um, so I love my galleries. I, they hustle like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're phenomenal people. It's just hard to, to sort of see work kind of exist in that way. Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm making this thing with my heart and soul and it's, I'm getting this amount. And so working with consultants is a little bit of a better split. Um, the best is when someone comes direct. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to tell you about the Paper Studio, my free Facebook group that has been evolving over the past several years. I'm re-energizing it in 2020 to include a monthly paper challenge. It's also a place to share what you're working on, get encouragement when you need a little push, be inspired with new ideas, tips, and tricks, all having to do with paper, of course. Join us by going to Facebook and searching for the group, The Paper Studio. Now back to the episode. You know, I think the gallery mode of working has really shifted in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, coming up, you, when I was younger, you really needed a gallery and I never really wanted to have one. I was always hesitant to sort of cast my lot in and do exclusivity with one group here or there. Um, but now it's, it's really shifting and most of my galleries sell work digitally. So it's like, mm-hmm. I'll ship the work there and then someone will see a digital photograph of it and they'll buy it based on the digital photograph. So I'm like, so then the gallery is, how are they facilitating? You know, what's right. used to be, you have an opening and you, you know, yeah, do the, right. and it's, it's really changing. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what my advice to younger artists would be other than just make work and get it out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's sort of my only key. Yeah. And yeah. what is your, um, what percentage is galleries and art versus art consultants? You think it's split? It's a great question. Um, I, I don't know offhand. Um, galleries tend to place larger pieces, higher price pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a sweet spot for our consultants where it's like, if it gets above a certain price point, it's almost like thinking about it, like certain pieces exist as investment in fine art and certain pieces mm-hmm. exist as, you know, not in a derogatory way, but like decor. Mm-hmm. So if a piece looks nice above a couch, like mm-hmm. that piece can exist at a certain price point And that's great. Um, once it gets, I don't know, like too conceptual or too weird or too like too dangerous looking almost. Sometimes I make pieces that are a little too spiky and like those have to live somewhere else than, than, you know, a home. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what the split is, but it seems like I'm just always busy between, between galleries and consultants and then, you know, just custom commissions. And then, you know, right. in and between shipping that. shipping and framing and all that stuff. My God, half my life is logistics of shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have, I have a team of people that help me at this point. Like mm-hmm. I've got shippers I've worked with for years that are really helpful and I can just throw them quotes. I have a framer that I love uh, locally that's really helpful. He's, he'll be here this afternoon. He's here all the time, Ray. Um, and so it's like you, you try to get this, you try to assemble a good team that can help you and you can throw stuff at it and be like, well, how do we make this happen for this show or how do we do this thing? I hired an assistant uh, three months ago. I've always had like assistants piecemeal. If I work in a large project, I'll hire someone, mm-hmm. but I, I physically have a guy that he moved here. He's 19. Um, 
it's it's been a little rocky <laughs> training him, yeah. uh, but I feel like he's he's on the up and up. His he's very technically good, um, yeah. but having someone just make boxes all day. Sometimes I'm just shipping a ton of work and having him make boxes is right, important. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the actual work. Sure. Um, I'm not sure how to do that. Um, so, well, let's talk about paper since this is paper talk. Sure. And um, what kinds of papers do you work with? And, and maybe you can pick one piece you're working on now or a favorite yeah. one and just kind of describe. Yeah, so about. the papers really shift depending mm -hmm. on what it is I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, scale is a big factor and then, you know, finish is a large factor. Typically, and for years I only worked using, you know, just all white. It was just monochromatic. I, I really, let, I'm colorblind first of all. Um, and thinking about light and form and pattern and line and, and, you know, shadow, all those things, that's what the work was about. It wasn't necessarily about the color. Um, and so I feel like I've come to color much later and I, maybe it's my own hang up with it, but like sometimes color is like a shortcut to emotion. I feel like, like I can make the same piece in white and it reads as one way mm -hmm. and then I'll make the same piece in red and people are like, ah, oh, red, you know, it's like you're, you, it's like an easy in to like, uh, -huh. uh so, and the joke, <laughs> the joke in grad school is like, if you can't make it good, make it big and red. Okay. Um, and so I, I always have that kind of going in the back of my mind of like, well, is this piece good because it's, it's in this certain palette or this certain range, or is it, is it good because it's metallic or do the metallic parts of it help the piece itself help doing what it's trying to actually achieve? Um, so I think a lot about that. Uh, typically my papers are, they're all acid free. It's all archival stocks. Mm -hmm. um, the weight changes depending on, you know, what, what it is that I'm actually doing. If it's sort of, you know, matte scale, if it's sort of my size, uh, I usually work with something between like a hundred pound, text weight to like a 10 point cover type of weight stock. So like a little bit thicker than copy paper, all the way up to maybe like a cover weight. Um, over the years I've done more with metallics and, you know, pearlescent papers and um, some color using gradients or using, uh, you know, colored sheets. Um, it kind of depends on, first of all, the idea that I have or what that thing is going to look like and what colors I want it to exist in. And then also it's a lot of it's dependent on who it's for and where it's going. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm at a point right now where I'm just sort of at maximum capacity and I don't want to make a piece that doesn't have a home. So it's like, if I'm starting a new large, like this piece behind me is this four foot piece. I just started yesterday. Like, I don't know where it's going. So I have to be mindful that I have to store it for a while before I get it to a gallery. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit all over the place. Sorry, that's not the most concise answer. That's but. okay. And where do you source your papers? I'm not looking for like that sure. anyone else is going to do that, but just yeah. curious how you find new papers or yeah. think, oh, I want to try something metallic, what's out there, or do you yeah. discover it and then? Yeah, sometimes it happens one way or the other. Like I've been looking for, like for example, I wanted to get a sheet where it's one color on one side and then a second color on the reverse. Mm -hmm. And you would think that that's like easily sourceable. It's actually not mm -hmm. to get it acid free and archival everything I, I make I want to last right yeah so I've been I've been trying to kind of hunting for that paper for a while and then it just sort of dawned on me like I have an assistant like I can just have him spray mount two sheets together or like you know twin tag two sheets oh, right. so he's been he's been making me paper but I order paper through Nina paper I get it through um, Canson paper I get it from 
Legion paper. I have a pretty good relationship with Legion. So if I need something, they'll just send cover sheets or, you know, um, I have too much paper at this point. I've, I've like flat files just filled with papers in the back. Um, so yeah, it's, it's generally not that I have the, and then I've been working with Tamarind, uh, which is a printmaking oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. institute in Albuquerque. And I was there and we actually printed our own paper. We were using ink and rolling out with lithographs and that sort of set me off on a different course using color and mm -hmm. being smart about that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, 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 yeah. It changes. Right, right. And have you ever tried handmade paper? Yeah, I mean, I've made abaca paper in the past. Uh -huh. I've made other cotton rag type papers. Uh -huh. um, for my purposes, it's a little bit tricky. I just need something consistent is the, is the thing. It's like I'll make a test right. piece and then it'll be like, oh, make this 300 more times. And yeah. it's like, well, now I got to actually... Be, you have to make the paper too. Yeah, and then I have to make yeah. the paper. I, I enjoyed making paper. Um, I don't think it's something I have the, the wherewithal to really do professionally. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed by it. Um, people that like yourself that can do it and, and have the facility and the brain power to, to do it. But uh, like It'd for me- another I, interesting collaboration, like you're doing yeah. with Cameron. To, yeah, yeah. To yeah. come here or and go somewhere. It, yeah. Like pe people that make paper send me paper. Like people just love sending me paper. Like it's the <laughs> last thing I need right now, but people just right. send me paper. And right. so I've got like a drawer full of like beautiful Abaca paper. I don't know what to do with it. Like mm -hmm. I, I could use it. I just don't know what I necessarily need to use it to say. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's not a question of sourcing it. It's just a question of like, well, what do I want to do with it? And mm -hmm. I don't know. Right, right. So uh, maybe describe the project you just mentioned that's behind you. And of course, yeah. we'll we'll put images and links to your website yeah. and everything, so readers, so listeners can look for sure. But, um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear the whole from from concept to where you're going with this piece, how you're going to produce it. All right. Well, this is this is a bit of a longer story, but I'll I'll try to distill it. So about three years ago, I started this unholy series. I've been working with a guy that does um, Alzheimer's research. He was looking at protein aggregation and the way that these protein strands cluster and aggregate. And then I'm um, I'm sort of distilling this down, but they they misfold and they cause other ones around them to misfold, and then you get things like Alzheimer's and cystic fibrosis, Parkinson's, mm -hmm. and so I had him come in the studio. I went to his lab. He came in the studio, and I've been working on these these pieces where it's like a modular design, but there's a repeating pattern to it where this thing ends up looking like this wave. It ends up looking like a, like wind blowing through a wheat field, let's say. Oh, and it's yeah. all made out of paper. Um, and it looks a lot like something you could do with parametric modeling and architecture, which I don't do. Um, but it, it looks like there's some math involved, which also I don't really do too mm -hmm. much of. But anyways, he came in, he came through the studio and he was talking about how, how these viruses or these, these diseases start rather. And he said, it's like this thing takes over and this unholy hell just unfolds. And I thought that's a good title for this series I'm working on. So they're called the unholy series and I'm on 205 right now of them. Um, and so this one, um, it's basically this sort of pyramid type shape. They look like this. I'm using some curve folding on it. Uh -huh. um, it's an array pattern, so instead of just being like a hexagon, it's arrayed around a central point. And then basically, it's a two-color paper, and then the tops are going to start to open 
like I'm showing oh, this to you. Yeah. No one's going to see yeah. this. Um, they're going to start to open like this. So it's black. It's a black piece. And then it's going to reveal this gold mm-hmm. on the inside. I don't exactly know how it's going to look, which is why I make a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see it in my mind doing something. And in my mind, it's probably going to look a little bit like a sunflower or something in bloom. Yeah. Um, but exactly how that pattern's going to array itself around, I don't quite yet know. And I think this piece is going to be a lot about how I shoot it and document it. I want to assemble it all closed and then slowly open it. So maybe having a video of this thing moving. So all those are things that are driving the piece, right? All those are things that it's like, I don't yet know. And I need to make the piece to see it, to understand it. Um, So a lot of my work begins with not knowing and then it's making it and then through making understanding or getting to know it better. Um, So that's the, that's the overarching uh, yeah, yeah. Nuts and bolts of it. But yeah. on the paper side, it's and the design side, there's a lot of modeling. There's some 3D modeling. There's a lot of figuring out of angles and forms and then unfolding. Uh, I'm unfolding it in CAD and then adding glue tabs and then, you know, cutting it out using the plotter and then assembly. I have a question. Are yeah. you modeling the whole piece or just the components? So the piece is made up of 36 components. Mm-hmm. And then those 36 get scaled. So I have to design the initial set. And once I've done that and I know that they work, I should be good. I'm scaling them and hopefully it's all going to fit where but it needs to fit. It's going to be more pieces than 36. You're saying there's 36 yeah. different designs. There's 36 yeah. shapes. So shapes. if you see like the circle, there's 36 arrayed around. Uh-huh. Okay. And then the next row, uh, it's like yeah. rotated a little bit and then it kind of gets tighter. So right. it should do this sort of spiraling inward sort of thing mm-hmm. you know and it's it's hard to talk about because i don't i don't have a name for it i don't have mm-hmm. a i have a system that works in my mind but it's hard to explain yeah um even how i excuse me even how i generate the pieces is very convoluted like the process of doing it is not it's not super obvious and it took me a long time to figure out how to do it mm-hmm. i mean I, i've been working on these sort of designs for a long time and instead of repeating it i would literally make 600 different shapes and I would have to model 600 different shapes and do glue tabs for and When I figured out how to do it with repeating and and tiling it and tessellating it It was like this light bulb went off was like, oh my god. I'm such an idiot. Like I two (laughs) two years. I've been doing this wrong Um, Uh and I don't know it it opened a bunch of doors and and it's sort of taken me to a new place and I'm curious to see where it's gonna go You know, I I think of art and I mean, it's sort of like our conversation. It's very nonlinear. Yeah. Um, it's tough when you describe your work and say, oh, I did this, then I did this, then it took me here, and then there I did. And it's like, it's not like that at all. It's like, I met this guy, I thought about right. it for 10 years, now I'm revisiting that series, but from a different light. I work with these people, but the thing I'm doing right now isn't really tied into the thing I'm doing now. It's more, and I don't know, as an artist, you get that permission to work in those ways. And I think the first part of my career was figuring out how to work, mm-hmm. you know, and being okay mm-hmm. with my process of maybe not knowing. I feel like when you're in grad school, there's like this grad school-itis of, I can't make a decision until I know exactly what I'm doing. You know, I have to be able to justify it in critique. And, you know, working intuitively is like this, well, you're just, you're just faffing about. And my process is really intuitive. It's like, I'm making gestures, I'm reacting, I'm, I'm stepping back, I'm, I'm usually working on five different things at once anyways. And so, I don't know, being okay with that, not knowing is important for me. And it took me a while to get there. 
Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, you want yeah, you want to know, but the beauty really is in not knowing. Yeah. And, and all these beautiful things happen. So yeah. I'm curious, you said this is num number 205. So what ties these all together? So they're all under this unholy series umbrella right. in that they are more or less modular designs where there's a repeating shape that it, maybe there's 20 units or 36 units, but it, it's hard for me to, it's, I don't know. I think when I work, I work in series. So I have like okay. an Aura series that I began, you know, 10 years ago, 12 mm -hmm. years ago okay. in Holy series. And it's a little bit of a way to, for me to filter my ideas. So if I have an idea in, for a form in space, I can see it sort of fitting into that series. I'm also really bad at titling things. And so it's just like, oh, it's 205. And like, maybe I'll think of a title later. Um, it's just a way to keep track of thoughts. But um, I don't know. I feel like working in series is a little bit freeing. And that way, you know, as an artist, you always think, I don't want to repeat myself. But this really ties into the one before it. And so for me, you know, I have this assistant. We were talking about what makes a piece good. And he's mm -hmm. 19. He was saying, is a piece good if it sells? Is a piece good if it gets a lot of likes? You know, and I, I was trying to say to him, no, uh, a piece is good if it teaches you something. And I said, it's actually better if it ends with a question instead of a period. You know, like mm -hmm. if, it, if it ends and you go, oh, this gives me like another idea or another, another path to sort of dig out. Right. Um, and so for me, the, my favorite pieces are the ones that are like the start of a new series or the start of like, oh, this gives me a hundred places to go. Um, and it's like, I can't get there unless I do these pieces. So like I'm on 205, but maybe there's only been 50 that people have seen, maybe probably less because mm -hmm. most of them are terrible. Mm -hmm. Most of them don't work. They, they start or they bump into themselves or they, um, they just, they look terrible. Like, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately you edit it and you go, this is, this one's not going to get out in the world. Right. Um, but they're necessary so that you can get from, you know, number one to number 12 to number whatever, 200. Right, right. Well, and that's cool that you keep the numbers in, even if you don't. Like, yeah. do you do you keep all of those pieces since they had a number? or, or They keep them, them digitally. Some of them never yeah. get past yeah. the computer. Some of them never get past, like, a, a small paper model. So everything that I do, it's either three-dimensional sketching on the computer or it's three-dimensional sketching with paper. Mm -hmm. um, most of my ideas start in sketchbooks, and then from there they, they get digital. Um, it's funny that they start out as sketching, then they become digital, 3D models, then they become flat models, digital, then they become flat paper, then they become 3D paper, then they become 2D images of it that people see on their computer. Sure. So it's like, it's this very back and yeah. forth process between, yeah. you know, analog and digital. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what are the, so what are the tools you're using when you're working with the paper? Sure. You're so, making a lot of components. Yeah. So let's see, what do I have on my desk? I use a lot of so you're able to cut, you're able to cut digitally. Is that correct? Cut and yeah, score. correct. Yeah. So I can do cut scores. I can do perforations. So the, that the machine does that. I pull it off the machine and then it's a matter of hand folding, gluing, assembly. Um, and so I'll use all different types of materials and tools. So I, I use a lot of things like um, I'm showing you, no one else can see. Yeah. These are like, just like uh, spatulas. So things to push things down, hold things down, move glue around, you know, I've got, hundreds of these, but different shaped ones so I can peel things up or move glue. Lift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lift. I've got um, all kinds of glue bottles. These are some glue bottles from Palace and from Rockler Hardware. Mm -hmm. So like needlepoint glue bottles. 
things like weights, just like a bunch of um, BBs and bags or lead shot. I have a lot of lead shot. Yeah. Um, Things like this, like you'd ask about reverse action tweezers. So they're basically tweezers that that their natural state is closed. Okay. So if I want to fold a thing and glue it, I don't have to sit there and hold it. I just do that. And now it's holding it in the glued position. Yeah. Um, All that kind of stuff. Various erasers, pencils, I don't know, knives, a million different kinds of blades. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's stuff you would find at like a, a Talus or any of those, like a Hollander's yeah. PVA glue. Right. Yeah. Right. It's nothing, there's no like real secret ingredient. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine you, when when you're actually assembling a piece, the the handwork, um, you must have a lot of time. I, you're probably generating ideas all the time. Do you yeah. keep those ideas or do you just do certain ones just kind of rise to the top and become the next project or yeah. just curious about that? I mean, I have just sketchbooks on sketchbooks. Helen. Yeah. So, so like I, uh, I always have a sketchbook on me or I have one in my bag. And so if I'm, I don't know. I take my daughter to gymnastics and I'm watching her tumble. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. you can only watch a six year old tumble for so long. So then I'm like drawing, I might be sketching. Right. right. Or if I'm, I don't, know, I don't know, waiting for something, I'll be drawing. Um, and so generally like I'll have like two or three sketchbooks going at the same time. And then something will start to bubble up. Like you said, like yeah. an idea or a pattern will come up and it's like, well, let's, let's try this. Let's see if, I, let's see what, if it, there's anything to this. Um, but yeah, as I'm working, I'm always thinking about pattern or form or, Mm-hmm. you know, design. Mm-hmm. Um, I really actually enjoy the hand assembly part of it. Um, my assistant's been helpful doing some light assembly. Um, mm-hmm. He's very good. And so I've been training him and, and thinking about ways of optimizing designs and forms so that he can help me assemble. Some of them are just like hard to put together. Right. <laughs> There's a learning curve for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I love just listening to, you know, podcasts or audiobooks and just folding stuff. I mean, that's, right. you know, like you said, like you're a full-time artist, like that's, that's, that's me winning is like, I get to hang out in the studio and listen to music and make art all day. Like beyond that, like, I don't know any other amount of money beyond that. It's like, well, maybe my kids will go to a better school. I don't know. (laughs) It's not like there's something I'm like, I'd really like to get that car. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about any of that. Like, I just want to make more work. I want to be in the studio. So, you know, when I sell a piece, I think, oh, this is like my rent for the next year, or this is my paying off this bill or whatever. Like I just get to do more of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Um, let's just wrap up talking about family life. Cause you have, sure. is your daughter six? I have a six year old and a six month old and a six month old. Yeah. Yeah. So how has that been? And your, your wife's an artist. So you're both kind of, it's a lot of juggling. I know I went through the same. My husband's a writer and yeah. I'm an artist and yeah. my kids just have gone to college. Oh, congratulations. So thanks. But did you have two kids, Helen? Yeah. Yeah. Two kids, two years apart. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely juggling. Yeah. Um, I, not to make this like, you know, confession podcast, but like when I was growing up, my dad was an accountant. He just wasn't around. Like mm-hmm. he was always off. Like yeah. he left before we left. He got home around dinner time. I mean, he was around, we had good times, but like, I just, there was like large portions of my childhood where I'm just like, I don't know where he was. Right. And my studio is about 500 feet from the house. Oh. Um, I take my daughter into school. We ride our bikes to school in the morning. Um, I'm usually home between four thirty and five. Like I just try to be around. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I was younger, I would, I would work, you know, 
20 hours a day, I would just go crazy. I just like getting the studio as soon as I had like a space to work. Like I was just like, I lived in the studio and now it's, it's, it's important to keep a schedule and to stick to it. You know, very easily I can be like, Oh my God, I get overwhelmed. And I'm just like, I have to work. I have to work. And then I have to remind myself that like, it is a balancing act, right? Like I want to, I want to be present. Um, so I don't know. It, it is, it's an eternal struggle and being self-employed is tricky because I don't have a boss. Like I don't, I don't mm-hmm. it's not like I clock in and I clock out and right. you know, I'm on my own case. So right. what I'll do is I'll, I'll design stuff when I'm in the studio. Or usually I'm just answering emails, honestly, in the mornings, but mm-hmm. I'll be doing stuff that I have to do here. And then I'll bring stuff home and like assemble at night. So like I'll get the kids to sleep and then like, I'll just be sitting on the couch. I'll just be using my hands. Like my brain is pretty much dead at that point, but I can fold and I can assemble things. So I'll just be assembling in the evenings mm-hmm. and that's been really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of wanted to hear what you had to say because uh, you're a little bit younger, 15 years younger than I am, I think. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, the balance, art and life, and it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, I've found that I get kind of like what we were talking about before about not knowing, like that's a good thing, um, that I spend a lot of time worrying about all the things I have to do, but when I actually sit down and do them, I can check them off pretty quick. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I don't need to be, if I could just cut out that worrying, <laughs> worrying about anxiety. money or yeah. Yeah, yeah. finishing something or getting everything done yeah. and, and actually just doing it. I, I say like, like, don't underestimate that feeling of like crossing something off a list is like the best feeling. Like we were trying to apply to this, uh, we were trying to apply to this, uh, this, uh, it was a public call for art and I just, I had to write a thing for it and I just didn't want to do it. I was just like, right. oh, God, I have to tailor this thing for this person. And I, I had to get out, I get allergy shots and I was in the allergist and I was just like, I had half an hour with no internet and I was like, I'm going to knock this out. And I was there for an hour. I just, uh, I just hung out longer and I did it and I felt so good. I was yeah. like, yes. Yeah. Um, Cause it, it was just like something weighing on me. So I don't know. I'm, I'm that, so I'm that way. I just need to get, things moving and then I feel yeah. better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always a balance. And the, the kids like art. I mean, mm-hmm. my daughter, when she was real little, I would just bring her to the studio and let her play, like give mm-hmm. her like vinyl tape or something. And she would mm-hmm. do collage here. Right. Uh, she's into paper. She likes, she's very good with little things, like little meticulous uh-huh. things. Yeah. I, you know, who knows where that comes from. Um, right. But she's, she's creative. She does that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Cool. Well, Matt, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Where can we find, where can we see your work online? So you can see my work at my website, mattschlein.com. I'm on Instagram. I think it's at matthewschlein.com. I'm out there. Yeah. And then you're, when you have a show in a gallery, how does someone find out about that? Do you have a newsletter or? I do have a newsletter. I've, I've only sent one newsletter in 10 years. I'm very lax (laughs) on the newsletter. I should send more. Um, so yeah, the, the newsletter you can sign up for on my website. It's like a, it's called The Fold. It's like a bunch of secret stuff in there. Yeah. Um, mostly like I'll just post it to, it goes from my Instagram, it goes to Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. So you, you can get it that way. If I have a show coming up or a talk, I'll post it there. Um, the big news of the year though is I have my book coming out. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, it's launching. I just talked to the editors. It's launching in two weeks, hopefully. Oh, um, it's through Thames and Hudson. Um, it's going to be 10 years worth of work in a book and I'm so excited for it to be out in the world. Yeah. yeah I can't wait to get a copy. And do, did you do much writing for that? Or is it mostly images? 
So it's mostly images. Mm -hmm. I have two essays. I have uh, Lawrence Weschler, the writer, wrote an essay. And then Eric Brogue, who writes about um, Islamic tiling and design, oh. wrote an essay. And then there's an interview with myself and Stuart Kestenbaum in there. Um, and there, I might do some more writing. I don't know. I, I, I'm debating whether or not I want to do a, like a, like a walkthrough of a piece. Like here it is from sketch to digital to assembly, like just explaining step by step. I'm debating whether or not I want to put something like that in. You know, very quickly you fill 256 pages. So I don't know. We'll see. But, but so the book is, is launching and then you can get the book or the book plus um, a print or the book plus like a limited edition record with some artists from Ghostly or you can get the book plus uh, like a 3D object. Oh, cool. Um, so there's different levels. So I'm hopeful that we'll get wow. some people roped And in. are you doing that through your website or is it the publisher? The publisher is so doing the book and then you're doing yeah. all these packages. Yeah. Well, so it's through okay. Thames and Hudson. It, they have an imprint called Volume that specializes in doing kind of weirdo artist monographs. They just uh -huh. did Stanley Donwood, the, the artist from Radiohead. He just did his. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like a Kickstarter, but it's specifically for their books. Um, but, you know, my hope is that the book itself is like around 40 or 50 bucks and then the different tiers, if you want to get something crazy, you can. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, you'll let me know about that because this episode won't air for a couple of months. So the, Oh, so hopefully by the time you hear this, the book will already be out. And, yeah, and people can. Yeah, and you can pick one up. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Awesome. Okay. Great talking to you, Matt. Great talking to you, Helen. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed it, I invite you to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And it would be awesome if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Paper Talk, where you can read the show notes, subscribe to this series, listen to other episodes, and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season.